Hey, what's up, psychos? Welcome to another episode of Take Your Pill Psychopath, the comedy podcast that exploits mental illness for personal profit. What? Trademark. I'm your host, John F. O'Donnell, J-Fod. Oh my goodness, am I excited for today's show. We have an amazing guest. I'm going to introduce them momentarily, but first, let's do some housekeeping up front, you psychos. Hey, guess what? I've got some shows on the road. Yeah, I'm doing a a run of shows in West Virginia. I'm going to be doing four headlining dates, which is exciting. Psychos, you know, I've been talking for a long time about wanting to get out on the road. Now we're starting to make it happen. My plan is to try to hit up uh, one little run of shows every month, a few dates, uh, ease in like that, because as much as I do want to be on the road a lot, I do know for me and my mental health, it's important to have a routine, and that does disrupt my routine, and historically, traveling has been a trigger sometimes for manic episodes, but I'm feeling very stable, feeling medicated, I'm feeling sober, I'm feeling like I'm taking care of uh, what I got to take care of. So now it's time to follow that dream of uh, doing stand-up on the road and headlining some rooms. So I got some shows coming up in West Virginia. So if anybody is there, I'm going to be there uh, bouncing around that state from November 10th uh, through November 13th. And there's four different shows. You can find out all the information about that on my Instagram, at the real JFOD, or at my website, jfodnews.com. And I will let you know that Sunday, November 13th, I'm going to be at a rock venue in Morgantown, West Virginia, called 123 Pleasant. So uh, if, you're, if you're in that area, please come out. Please let people know about it, because it would be great to see some psychos in attendance. So yeah, we're getting on the road a little bit. Um, next thing I always let you guys know about my stand-up special, it's on YouTube. All you have to do is type my name into the search is the first thing that comes up. It's called the Manic Depressive Chocolate Fountain Operator. Um, if you, uh, if you get a chance to watch it, make sure to give it a like and leave it a comment. It always uh, makes me happy to see that. So there's that. Also, if you're in the New York area every Friday night, I run a live comedy show called Live from Outer Space at Cobra Club. That's at 9 o'clock. It's always good to see psychos there. Um, And if you have some extra cash, you can support me on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash jfod, J-F-O-D. That always means a lot to me. It allows me to keep doing this show. And finally, if you want to let me know about anything you'd prefer for me to talk about, any of your personal experiences, whatever, just say or just say hello. Feel free to email me at takeyourpillspod at gmail.com. All right. Those are all of the plugs. So now I am so excited to introduce clinical psychologist and co-founder of the Alliance Collective, which is a non-hierarchical worker cooperative made up of social workers, a psychologist and an administrator, Billy Somerville. Hey, Billy. John F. O'Donnell. <laughs> it's good to be sitting down with you, man. Yeah, buddy. I've, I've known you just here in the neighborhood. I've been attending your comedy shows for, I think, like six or seven years now. If it is at least, man. Right. And what I want to say is uh, I'm so appreciative of you and how supportive you've been of my comedy over the years. Dude, it's legit good. Like, I don't have to gas you up uh, to make that point. It's fucking hilarious. And it's really smart, you know? You're a sweetheart. You're the best. And you know what it is? Here's what it is. I talk a lot about mental health. I talk a lot about my mental illness on stage, which as a clinical psychologist, I think you appreciate. Yes. Um, But also, I think I do it in a way that's that's really honest and hopefully really funny. But also, I don't talk about myself in this kind of pathetic sort of defeated way, you know? 
It's true. I remember, I think the first set of yours I ever saw, you were talking about having a manic episode on, somewhere on the Brooklyn Bridge. And it was it was very <laughs> revealing. It was very honest. It was very funny. And um, yeah, I just, I respected the way that you were talking about that, putting that out there. Yeah. And it always, it always makes me feel good um, if someone is a, like a mental health professional uh, can kind of see me in that light and appreciate what I'm doing. It actually means a lot to me. Like there's, um, there's a bit on my special where I found out that a professor uh, at a university in Virginia was showing a clip of my stand-up during his lecture on mood disorders. And I got such a kick out of that when, when like a student emailed me about that. You know what I mean? And that turned into like a five-minute bit and it's just so it was just so wild. Once I got that once I got that email when she was like, hey, John, I stumbled upon your work through my abnormal psych class, which is just absolutely what an opening. right? Yeah. What a what a gift, you know. Um, but yeah, your support has always uh, has always been really, really cool. Uh, yeah. Billy would always come to Cobra Club to live from outer space. We've been doing that show psychos since 2013. Mm-hmm. How yeah. crazy is that? So it's it's the longest uh, running independent comedy show in Brooklyn. So that's something we've survived a lot. And so we're proud of that for sure. Um, Billy, before we jump into so many different things, I'm so excited to talk to you about because, I mean, you guys, this is the this is the first psychologist I've been able to get on the show. <laughs> <laughs> it's exciting. It's exciting. You know, this is a big get for us. This is really cool for us psychos to hear this perspective um, through the lens of Take Your Pills Psychopath. This is cool. Um, Because Billy's not only a really interesting, great psychologist, he's also uh, very, very politically radicalized in a way that is changing the structure of how mental health is delivered to the people, which is great. And we will get into that. Um, But first, Billy, can you just give people an introduction about yourself and some background? Sure. Um, I am a clinical psychologist. I can talk a little bit more later about kind of my ambivalence about that discipline, you know? Absolutely. (laughs) We will get into that, I promise. Because there's plenty to critique there. Um, But yeah, I'm I'm like a non-traditional student who took several different tries to find out what I actually wanted to do with my life. Um, so I came to psychology long after my classmates had kind of gotten their start. I was about 10 years older than everybody else in my cohort at the new school for social research where I got my PhD in clinical psychology. Um, but just finding my way into care work and specifically mental health, uh, I knew pretty early on that that was the right fit, the right combination of just kind of all of my interests and passions. And yeah, it just gave me a, a place to kind of be and, and a, a, a place to kind of operate from in order to do the kind of work that really felt meaningful and, and good. So I'm really happy to be here. It's been kind of a long and winding road to get here, but yeah. This is great, man. I mean, it sounds pretty selfish, generally. You know what I mean? The idea of wanting to help other people. I'm just kidding. But uh, but I think that's great. I think that's awesome um, that you found something you're passionate about, that you got there, that you pursued your PT- PhD and got that. I almost said pursued your PTSD. Uh, There's a little bit of that in there, too. <laughs> yep. um, I think that's awesome. Um, okay, cool. So that's some background. Uh, and... Um, I just wanted, okay, so basically you kind of touched on this a little bit, but before we get into, uh, you know, your philosophy about mental health and all of that stuff, um, your philosophy about how businesses should be run, 
everything like that. Um, can we talk a little bit more about what made you want to be a psychologist? And did I also, did I hear you, someone interviewer almost asked you a question where, where you were kind of saying, or you were about to talk about how, if you could do it all over again, you wouldn't. Mm. <laughs> I think I was talking specifically about clinical psychology as a discipline, as a profession. Um, I think I would have been happy with a different kind of credential or degree. Um, you know, psychology is very intrapsychic in its orientation. Um, where does that mean? Just kind of locating the problem, like within the mind. Okay. Whereas some other disciplines, like social work, for example, are just better at seeing the person in the environment, taking into account the contextual and systemic factors. You know. Yeah. In psychology, yeah. there is some effort to account for like cultural factors. <laughs> But that does feel a bit kind of tacked on. It's it does feel a bit uh, somewhat of an of, afterthought. A bit of an afterthought. Um, so I think I would have been happy as like a clinical social worker or something like that. Uh, the thing that I liked about getting a PhD in psychology is just how much time I had to read and think and practice and receive supervision. That um, was a full seven years. So by the time I got done, I really felt grounded in some kind of theoretical orientation, even if I would go on to critique it and reformulate it and kind of go through my own sort of deconstruction process to kind of uh, just revisit some things that I had learned. But I think just having that amount of time, it, it made me really feel like it was being taken seriously. <laughs> yeah, totally. Whereas in, in some other, uh, some other professions within mental health, the model, the training model is different and you kind of get thrown in early you do like maybe a year of coursework, maybe not even that much. And then they're just like, okay, like go out there and like start working with people and like, we'll help you as you go along. Um, That's so wild. I, I felt like uh, just kind of the, the slower path through that was just better for my learning style. Yeah. I mean, that, that just seems to make so much common sense, you know, that you have time to really figure out what type of uh, psychologist you want to be, what sort of approach you want to take, and really just learn a lot. That's it. It's interesting. What do you think about, and maybe this isn't the case, but like a bunch of years ago when I was in college, at the time, psychology was becoming one of the most popular majors. Um, but there was like no barrier to entry to become a psychology major. Right. Um, and I remember in Ireland... Like psychology was one of the most exclusive majors. Um, is that still the case where it's just like a bunch of people are becoming psychologists? I maybe uh, just at the I'm undergrad tracking level. with this observation about the undergrad level. Um, I think that is true that a lot of people end up with psychology as a major. I think people are genuinely interested in their own experience and how their minds work. Um, that was certainly the case for me. Yeah. Uh, before I knew I wanted to become a psychologist, I I was in that same position of like, well, I need a major. I need to declare a major. <laughs> so I got my own kind of weird head to contend with here. Like maybe these classes will teach me more about what's actually going on there. Yeah. So I agree with you that the, the barrier to entry is quite low at the undergrad level. And then it gets very, very exclusive at the graduate level. Yeah. Those programs are hard to get into and they're prohibitively expensive. So just throw that in the mix as well. Yeah, that sucks. I mean, it's like, it's something that so many people need. People need help. Uh, you know, people need therapists, psychologists, social workers. 
Um, and the fact that there's such a barrier to entry is, uh, is, is really problematic, you know? Um, what, uh, what would you say were some of the biggest challenges in the program that you had, uh, pursuing your PhD? The program that I graduated from has, has a good reputation in that it's thought of, uh, well in New York city and, and perhaps beyond as being kind of a rigorous program, Graduates of the New School Psychology program are, are thought to be uh, serious and <laughs> disciplined and good at what we do. Yes. Um, and so the kind of environment that produces that uh, type of graduate is not only a rigorous one, but uh, quite an authoritarian one as well. Um, there's just a, a lot of kind of focus on adhering to a certain set of kind of norms and standards um, so it wasn't a great place for like a, a budding anarchist to try to kind of make their way yeah. through. Um, yeah. Def- definitely kind of uh, very hierarchical tangling with with uh, some of those kind of different forces there in the institution that I was kind of butting up against while I was there. So I, I managed to make it out and actually graduate. But it, but a lot of people, especially folks who are kind of like more rad than I was when I started just don't end up making it through. It's just, it's too punitive. It's too restricting. It's, it's a lot of kind of being told how to think really. And that, that's not great for minds that, that love freedom. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, what's, uh, what's, what's an example of an authoritarian, authoritarian, uh, aspect of it? Can you think of something specific? There's just an incredible amount of, of evaluation of the student at all times. There are all these metrics that you're kind of being measured against. Um, your your clinical skills are kind of broken down into this, this scientific kind of smorgasbord of these different components of skills that you're developing. So everything's being kind of assessed and analyzed as you go. It, uh, it definitely has kind of like a like a Henry Ford kind of factory floor kind <laughs> yeah. of feel to it, um, which are the same critiques that, that apply to uh, that style of education across the board. You know, yeah, everything's very kind of systematized and mechanized and not a lot of attention given to like the individual in that system. It's more kind of like what product are we producing? Um, and I, you know, I say that about my experience at the new school, but I, I think that's true of, of basically all of these programs. Yeah. Yeah, because they're they're all within the same system, you know, they're all under, let's say, a vulture capitalistic system um, that is trying to put out some sort of product that's incentivized by profit. Right. That's it. Um, And uh, it's interesting as calling yourself a budding anarchist like to me. um, And I don't talk a ton about politics on this show. I have other other avenues where I talk a ton about politics on certain episodes of type take your pill psychopath. I certainly have done some deep dives, yeah. but it's like the idea of anarchism appeals to me a lot. Um, it appeals to me more than our current system. And it also appeals to me more than a robust centralized state, right? Because that seems very hierarchical and very top down, right? Um, compared to a horizontal approach, uh, and we okay, we got to talk about some other stuff first, but because uh, first I want to talk about your critiques of what I've heard you what I've seen you write as it's called the mental health industrial complex. But then we can talk about how you've uh, been a, a co-founder really of of pioneering a structure 
of of a of, of horizontal compared to vertical when it term in terms of the relationship of employers right. employees. Yeah. Um, so first, is there anything else you want to say about your experience? Uh, pursuing your clinical psychology degree is there anything that 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 we haven't covered yet about that before we get on to this the mental health industrial complex <laughs> i i think just as i kind of look back on it i i don't have any regrets about the path that i chose um you know it kind of led me to where i am today i was able to meet some incredible people along the way who really did influence my thinking and help me to develop some more kind of radical perspectives on not only psychology, but mental health and just kind of the entire human experience here in the 21st century. Um, totally. So I am actually really grateful, um, partly just for, for having a chance to learn those skills and start to apply them here in New York City, um, just here in this this kind of, uh, you know, this this sort of bristling with energy kind of a live laboratory of of human <laughs> social relations uh this is a great place just to be thinking about the human condition thinking about mental health thinking about you know what contributes to health and illness kind of being able to sort of zoom out and have those big picture thoughts here in this environment i think was was a really crucial aspect of of my development as a clinician yeah, I mean, that's huge. There's so many people who are so packed in here, living all of these different life experiences side by side, yeah. overlapping, sometimes interacting, oftentimes not interacting, yeah. while at the same time just living these full inner and outer lives. It's unbelievable. Um, and I think that there is connectivity between people and in, in all sorts of different levels, conscious and unconscious. So everybody kind of sharing this space, it is. it must be an amazing place to practice your craft yeah um uh what was i gonna say so i mean obviously your take on life your politics uh your radical ethos must inform your your uh, techniques as a psychologist what does that look like this is still very much in process just because it was so different from anything i learned in grad school so I graduated in 2016 um, and then did a postdoc year, which you need in order to get a license. So I've been practicing autonomously now for just under five years. Um, but the, <laughs> the kind of work that I do and my approach to it is, is borrowed from and formed by things that I learned in grad school, but like, very much a departure yeah uh just because the the politics turn out to be incredibly important just kind of like how you're thinking about who people are who we could be you know the way that our relationships to each other and our relationship to ourselves are absolutely um colored by informed by the not just the social context but kind of all the power relations that we exist under so yeah, kind of like having having an an imagination that allows me to think of human beings who are like actually free and like are existing within bonds of communal care rather than relations to capital or the state. <laughs> that's that's sort of where the vision for what we could be comes from and then it's kind of a question of like how does sitting with somebody for 45 minutes once a week 
help with that or lead to that or facilitate any of that and kind of the spoiler alert is like not very much and and I think that is kind of my my sort of overarching problem with with mental health as we know it is it is just like uh too little too late it is just such kind of a a patch-up job it's an attempt to to try to kind of bandage over some deep deep wounds that are caused not not because some particular person just kind of uh you know got dealt a bad hand genetically and like oh i'm sorry like you have depression but more like your entire conception of yourself and the way that you relate to everyone here uh has has been marred and and fragmented by having to exist in this particular kind of society so i really do view most mental health problems as being related to systemic issues much more so than than anything going on with the individual i'm I'm way over on the nurture side of the nature nurture debate interesting yeah um okay that's really interesting how do you how do you so what if the person that you are with your client that the person that you are treating or the person that you're talking with is doesn't have let's say political awareness um, sees themselves existing within this system and is looking for um, it's looking for help, yeah. you know, uh, how do you, how do you square that? That's most of my clients. When I first started out, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't put any kind of restrictions <laughs> on who was allowed to come see me. You're like, I'm the anarchist only psychologist. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was not my approach. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, most, most of my clients and these are people I've been working with for years now kind of fall into the, the category that you're describing of, yeah, folks who have some understanding of like the world that we live in and, and their experience of it, but wouldn't necessarily describe themselves as, as political, much less kind of like radical. So yeah. Um, I'm not, I'm not proselytizing when I'm working with them. I'm not, I'm not sneaking them any uh, pamphlets or zines under the table or anything like that. But but I am drawing on my understanding of our social and political context to to inform my intervention. So I am kind of inviting them to think more about kind of the the systems that are bearing down on them and kind of making life as alienating and miserable as it is and and honestly really trying to help somebody see like maybe the problem is not inside of me. (laughs) Um, Maybe it's kind of more on the outside of me. And if I can develop a better relationship with myself, a more trusting relationship, depending on who the client is, sometimes I'll say, can you develop a more comradely relationship with yourself? It's hilarious. Then that actually could help you at work, right? Because you're going to be more frustrated with your boss right you're going to be able to see uh just how bad things really are but there is something in that clarity of conception that can produce a lot of relief internally by helping you feel less like the problem being able to appropriately externalize sometimes in my field this word externalized is used uh, to indicate like some some kind of a a bug rather than a feature you know like this this patient is like externalizing yeah but in in this case that we're talking about in this context it does make sense to locate the problem as being not within yourself but maybe 
maybe out there, you know? Yeah. yeah. My, my comrade in the practice, Juliet, she had this idea for our website. She was like, what if we just put in giant letters at the top? There's nothing wrong with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we thought about that for a minute. We decided not to do it just because a lot of people are coming to therapy because they really do believe that something is. And, and I think that message would be kind of off-putting for folks like right off the bat. Um, it's it, hilarious. It, it just, it does not, uh, doesn't really uh jibe well with with basically what people have been told about themselves or their experience of themselves yeah um so sometimes that's gonna an idea that comes later is like what if what if the problem is is more so kind of in the system that you live in and the way that you have to navigate it the way that you're kind of forced to uh belittle and demean and dehumanize yourself just to kind of make it here what if that's kind of more where the problem is yeah yeah can it be both maybe it's both yeah I think uh, so with the nature versus nurture thing, how do you square that with like the uh, the theories about chemical imbalances and the world of psychiatry and stuff like that? This gets a little tricky and this isn't my area of of expertise, um, but if if I can use you as an example. Yeah, <laughs> please do. <laughs> Something like bipolar disorder is is more hereditary than other kinds of mental health conditions. There, there does seem to be more of a genetic component um, to the to the experience of uh, kind of big mood states that come and go. Yeah, and I would be the last person to deny anyone a framework or an understanding or conceptualization of a problem that does actually seem to be helping. Yeah, um, and I do, I do think that. Bipolar disorder is one of, I think, maybe a small subset of, of mental health problems or, or conditions or experiences that probably can be helped by medication. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's part of the picture for me. And it took me a long time to accept it. It took me a long time to find something that worked. Um, but uh, I mean, if that, along with a number of other aspects, like a holistic approach to it, can keep me well i've really made my peace with it yeah you know so i think there's just a lot of other kinds of experiences that people are having that they are being told that they need to be medicated for and that's kind of more what i'm interested in pushing back against and i agree with that pushback yeah i i totally agree with that pushback i think that we're an over medicated society i think sometimes medication is seen as a uh first resort when maybe it can yeah. be more of a last resort or it can be something that someone's on for a little bit of time if they're acutely dealing with something and then right. they can right. go through a process of, of therapy and then potentially go off of this medication. My, that was kind of my experience. Um, my first major depressive episode uh, was when I was in my late 20s and it was just so heavy and all-encompassing and I was just kind of f- laid flat out on my couch and I couldn't make a sandwich and I couldn't take a shower. Yeah. Um, so antidepressants helped me at the time just to kind of lift the cloud enough for me to be able to kind of look around at my life, see what some of the kind of root cause problems were that were leading, that were contributing to my depression at the time and try to make some changes. So I'm very grateful for the medicine to, to be able to kind of give me a bit of a kickstart in that direction. I think it, it would have been a kind of a slow, brutal slog to get out of it if I had not had that assistance at that time. Yeah, yeah. But then you were able to eventually get off of antidepressants? I'm not on them now and haven't been for some time. Um, 
there was just kind of a deliberate choice to start weaning myself off of them. And I didn't have the help that's available to folks now. Uh, there's something called the Inner Compass Initiative, if folks want to Google that, which just uh, provides some guidelines and helps for actually tapering down off of psychiatric medication safely and slowly. Uh, just because a lot of that information is not provided by the drug companies. They don't really have much of a financial interest in helping people get off of <laughs> those <laughs> <Yeah>. medicines. <laughs> I'm going to agree with that. Um, so the Intercompass Initiative, uh, and specifically within that, I think it's called the Withdrawal Project. Um, just That's very provides, worthwhile to know about. Provides some really helpful tips uh, for being able to, to taper down slowly. Because a lot of times you're told your psychiatrist will agree to help you get off of it, but they'll just whack your dose in half. <laughs> yeah. And so your mind and body are freaking out. You're in acute withdrawal. And unfortunately, some people say like, well, I guess I guess I can't do this or I guess this is the wrong choice for me. So I should just go back to where I was at. What, yeah. a, you know, the the level that I was on. And apparently the withdrawal from uh, antidepressants is very, very difficult. It can to be. Deal with. It, it can, can be. be. And it can be dangerous. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. What's that? What's the name of that site again? Inner Compass Initiative. Inner Compass Initiative. Is the, the kind of broader... Uh, I don't know if they even call themselves an organization, but then within that, I think it's called the Withdrawal Project that's specifically about coming off meds safely. What a and great slowly. resource. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it's interesting because I have such it's such a paradox to me, the idea of taking medication that's created by Big Pharma because I know that they, I believe in my heart that they don't care if we live or die. Mm. <laughs> so at the same yeah. time, I have to use their product. Right. It's like, it's just like a, it's like, uh, just a bummer. <laughs> it is. It is a bummer. Yeah. But yeah, it's, you know what? It's okay. It's okay. Um, I think now we can, uh, we can transition and we can talk about, and I really want you to just go to town here. <laughs> um, and just tell me what issues do you have? With the mental health industrial complex, <laughs> Billy. I think the starting position here is the world that you and I want to live in just doesn't have mental health problems of the nature that we have. Yes. Also, right? so you know, the world that me and you want to live in, stand-up comedy would be highly marginalized. Right? Yes. My profession would be out the window because everybody would yeah. be too happy. That's why stand-up doesn't work well in New Orleans mm -hmm. because everybody's just <laughs> having a good time. That's why it thrives here in New York. But anyway, go ahead. So what about this? What if what if we agree that uh, if the revolution comes about, maybe you and I will both be out of a job and maybe that's okay? I guess it is okay. It will be fine. But that being said, I think that there is something about meaningful work yes that does bring a sense of purpose to people yes i do true. think that that's right but anyway talk some shit about the mental health industry. so <laughs> <clears throat> what i mean by that just kind of starting from that position that like in a society where people's needs were actually met and there were bonds of solidarity between people there was such a thing as communal care I think we I think mental health problems would be pretty rare. I think they would still exist, but it, I think um just statistically we would see tiny numbers compared to what we have today. So I think that's an important starting position because um 
the the problem that we're looking at and trying to think about is the fact that to use the bell hooks phrase imperialist white supremacist capitalist patriarchy has created the vast majority of the problems that that same system is then turning around and trying to treat <laughs> so that's that that is the problem in my view yeah is you know uh you are you have been gaslit by society and <laughs> told that you're doing it wrong and if you would just pull yourself up by your bootstraps more and work harder and be more grateful for what you have then you would be happy but you're not happy so obviously you're fucked up in the head so here's the medicine if you don't like the medicine here's a therapist you can go talk to about that um so the problem is that the the entire system that's trying to treat these problems is part of the problem itself yeah would you agree with that yeah, I would largely agree with that. I mean, it's 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 strange. It's it's like we realize how rigged the system is and how difficult it is um, and how income inequality is just getting bigger and bigger and how hard it is to make a living. Yet at the same time, if we're not self-sufficient and upwardly mobile, we feel like it's a reflection of our weakness of character. That's it. It's like such it's like this fucked up dichotomy that exists inside of us. That's it. Because of our socialization. And if you allow yourself to really think about that, you might get depressed. And if you get depressed, then all of a sudden you have this label and you're supposed to do something about it. And people are telling you that you should talk to someone. And maybe you do need to talk to someone. Maybe you get a chance to come talk to someone like me <laughs> who would say, <laughs> hey, man, you're you're actually not the problem. Yeah, it's it's much more everything that you're relating to and the way that you're being forced to relate to it. Do you think putting people through that process of realizing that uh, can have the effect of making them feel better about themselves or could it have the effect of making them feel more overwhelmed and lost? I think that is that is a line that has to be walked because uh, there is some even if it's not true. There is something kind of appealing about the idea that like, oh, I have a chemical imbalance and like, here's the thing that treats that. I guess. Yeah, I guess there is for some people. I just look at my personal experience that I was just so upset about it for so long. But I think you're right. I think you're right. For some people, it's like, oh, I know what's wrong with me now. Right. I can get a fix for it uh, here and we'll just move forward. Yeah. And I think diagnosis is a bit of a double-edged sword in that regard i remember in my experience when i was depressed and didn't yet know that that was a name you could call that i i was glad to find that label i remember typing in my symptoms into webmd i was like lethargic uh inattention to hygiene poor, <laughs> poor sleep <laughs> low appetite and webmd was like Major depression. Depression. And I, I do remember kind of feeling a, a little gleam of hope of just like, oh, okay. So that that's a thing I've heard of. I've heard about this. So maybe there is something that can be done for it. Yeah. My friend who has a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, she said when she finally got that diagnosis that it was a relief in the sense that she's like, now I understand why these things have happened right. are happening. Right. You know? Well, at the same time, we could both totally acknowledge that that di the labels of diagnosis are very imperfect and there's a lot of kind of talk about how sometimes they're more problematic than they are helpful and how it's a really a continuum of of uh, symptoms uh, is kind of a better way to look at and to potentially treat somebody than to just deal with a label. I would agree with that. Yeah. But anyway, go for it. Oh, right. I'm supposed to go in on the mental health <laughs> industrial complex. 
<laughs> yeah, man. This is. I want this to be yeah. like a cathartic yes. vent session for you. <laughs> I want to recommend a book that uh, maybe maybe either coined that term or makes makes a lot of use of that term. Um, it's called "We've Been Too Patient," um, and it's a lot of stories of psychiatric survivors just basically kind of putting the lie to the idea that any of these systems are actually involved in healing or care. Um, and a lot of them are, are just creating a lot of harm instead. So yeah, I, d I don't think I have anything kind of fresh or original to say about the mental health industrial complex other than just being able to kind of observe my own place within it and to be kind of real about the fact that, yeah, I do earn a living in that system. Uh, the majority of my income comes from health insurance companies, which are these problematic behemoths of capitalism um, that are also not interested in, in healing or care. Um, yeah, their whole business model is to deny care because if they if it. they gave it out to everybody, they'd go out of business. That's it. It's so perverse. I just learned this term recently: ghost network, which is the the uh, practice of an insurance company to collect a lot of names of providers and put them in a database, and then sort of trot that out as if that was the network of people that you could be seen by when none of them are available. None of them are taking new patients. So there you go. That's a thing what? they apparently do. So they show it as though, like, look at how many options we provide. And I'm sure that gets them some sort of tax incentive or something, probably. Um, uh, and then they actually can't even provide that care. It's a pretty great model, right? Oh, it's so twisted. Um, so anyway, go ahead. <laughs> I think I think the the particular uh, kind of angle on the mental health industrial comp complex that we have taken up at Alliance Collective is looking at the labor practices within it and trying to do something about that. So that it, that is some some ground that I I feel pretty comfortable standing on and speaking to. It's just uh, yeah, what what kind of radical labor relations can look like in that world. Yeah, well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the Alliance Collective uh, that you are co-founder of, also known as the Alliance Psychological Services of New York. Is that correct? So the state of New York has made it difficult and complicated to create a worker co-op that is a health services organization. Turns out there's a lot of laws that kind of make that hard or sometimes impossible amazing you guys navigated through this bureaucracy and this like yeah. legalese insanity in order to get this certification that's right. right so alliance psychological services of new york is the service delivery entity that's a psychology practice and according to new york state law only psychologists are allowed to own that type of practice so that's why i am the owner of that business and then so that and that's actually kind of where all the therapy is happening is in in that entity then there's a separate entity called Alliance Collective, which has a contractual relationship with the psychology practice, and it provides kind of more administrative services. So it's paying the rent, it's managing our liability insurance for everybody. Um, basically anything non-clinical is happening over in that other entity. And we're all allowed to co-own that together. We weren't allowed to co-own the psychology practice because we have different licenses. So New York said, if you were all psychologists, then you could co-own it together. That would be fine. But because you're psychologists, social workers, and an, an administrator, a, a sort of non-licensed professional, then that 
could not be co-owned equally in that way under New York state law. So that's kind of why we had to go through this convoluted long process to, to set it up this way. So this is cycles. Listen to this. This is the process that they had to go through just to create a worker owned business. That's it. Turns out it's a lot easier in other States. We have some comrades in Massachusetts, Western mass who recently opened their therapy practice, which is called Catalyst Cooperative Healing. You can look them up. And they had none of the problems that we had. Wow. They also have different licenses. Uh, they have a they have right now two or three therapists and then uh, an administrator who's not a health professional. And they were all able to, to co-own their entity together with no problem. So it seems like New York State is just particularly kind of onerous and, and rigid here and that's that shouldn't be a surprise to anyone yeah 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 so let's take a step back can you explain the cooperative model for sure so in 2017 i had just gotten my license to practice and was trying to figure out kind of what what my next step was going to be and i decided to start out in solo private practice um Partly because I didn't want to work for anybody else. I was so sick of bosses at that point. And I just kind of had this idea of like an insurance based uh, practice that would be affordable for poor and working class folks, you know, having a sliding scale that people could actually afford. So it felt good to start out that way, but I knew I wasn't going to last for long working alone. I'm just way too social of a person. And yeah. Kind of need to work with people. So I was like, okay, so this solo practice needs to be a group practice, but I know it can't be the kind of group practice that I look around and see everywhere here in New York. It can't be this like weird little capitalist enterprise where you have some founder of the practice who thinks way too highly of themselves. Let's be honest. They think there's some, some kind of like psychology guru yeah. and they have all these like trainees and underlings working for them. And of course, like none of those people are being paid very well and their caseloads are too high. I was like that, that's not it. Yeah. So it's hierarchical. It's kind of trickle down. It's that's uh, it. Wow. Right. That's wild. That's basically what all the, it's all about, bra- it's all about branding. It's about branding. Um, Yeah. So I was like, okay, so that's not it. So I was like, how do I start a group practice? You could have been that person. You could have been, you could have had your underlings because you got the PhD and you have the uh, license, right? I, I like to think, I like to think that I, Billy could not have been that person. (laughs) In theory, not in practice. But yeah, that's the route that, that a lot of people go. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, okay, time out. I need to, I need to pay my bills. Right. I've got this shitty apartment in Ridgewood that costs too much. And I've, I've got, you know, groceries. Hey, that that's I need to buy. That, that you see that list that just came out in timeout, New York. Yeah. Got, what are we? The fourth. fourth. Coolest neighborhood yeah. In the world? So we live in Ridgewood, Queens, you guys. And timeout, New York came out with this ridiculous <laughs> list of the 51 coolest neighborhoods in the world. Not in New York, in the world. And they did Ridgewood, Queens is number four. <laughs> After someplace in Portugal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't believe the hype. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's pretty nice. It's pretty cool. <laughs> it's fun. But anyway, go ahead. So it's like, yeah, I got, I have bills to pay, but I have absolutely no interest. Like I, I, 
would not be able to live with myself if I was in that situation of being like a yeah like a like a little greedy capitalist business owner yeah a little so, petty bourgeoisie hey, thank you yeah so that's when I dude. that's when I learned that worker co-ops even exist they're very com- okay maybe not very common they're much more common elsewhere in the world than they are here yeah we just here in the U.S. we haven't had much chance to interact with them also there is less instances of people on medication for mental illness in other parts of the world interesting john is that a correlation I, or a cause uh, i don't know i don't know yeah, yeah <laughs> it's interesting but go ahead so i knew about i knew about food co-ops i knew about housing co-ops but i'd never heard of a worker co-op so i just had to to start educating myself figure out what that is and it's actually pretty simple um in a worker co-op, the owners of the business are the people who work there. And so everything is decided democratically. There is no one person or, or one small group who's making decisions for everybody else. Those decisions are made together. In a large co-op, you can you can set up kind of different tiers if you want to. You can, you know, it doesn't have to be the case that like every single decision in a company is made by everybody that can get a little unwieldy in a large organization. Even in ours, uh, a group of six people, there are some decisions that don't require everybody. And so we just, we have a... a pretty clear kind of outline of what types of decisions need to be made by whom there's a bit of a myth. So we use consensus decision-making rather than voting. Um, and the difference there is just in consensus in consensus. You, you just hear everyone's opinion and then you arrive at some agreement. And the idea is like, even if it's not everyone's favorite, <laughs> folks are willing enough to kind of go along with it, that that is sort of the consensus of the group. So there's compromise. There is compromise. There's, yeah. Um, and that's different from voting because in a majority rule voting situation, what that allows for is that somebody with an important minority opinion can just get railroaded. They can just get left out. Um, yeah. So in a, in a group as small as ours, consensus actually works really well. And it does require the development of a certain kind of skill set to be able to even relate to each other that way. So that's been one of the more exciting things I think to see is we're actually building the skills and the capacities to relate to each other horizontally, which is hard to do in the kind of society that we're born into. A very hierarchical society doesn't give you those skills to be able to relate horizontally. You have to kind of pick those up along the way. Down yeah, the just kind of learn as you go. So there's been a lot of learning as you go mm-hmm. in our in our little therapy practice. But yeah, that's where the idea came from, was just wanting to be a group practice, but a non-hierarchical one. And the worker co-op was just the obvious solution to that problem. It sounds like the coolest therapy practice ever. It's pretty fucking cool. Ah, and it sounds, it's not, if this can be scaled out, um, you know, maybe scaled out is the wrong word because that sounds very vertical. But uh, this could be. If this could be implemented in a number of places, that could be wonderful. There's no reason for it not to be, truly. It requires some willingness to take risks. <laughs> um, it requires, uh, yeah, just having an imagination to be able to conceive of something like this. And then also just being able to kind of tune out a lot of people who are going to tell you that it's going to fail, that you're making a terrible mistake. Uh, when I started talking about this with people, 
like very well-meaning colleagues of mine would say, well, it's just a matter of time before somebody stabs you in the back, you know? Or like, how do you, why do you think you can really trust people that way, right? Wow. And it turns out that that trust is very available and very possible to cultivate when that's a priority, when that's a value, right? If everybody is interested in trying to trust each other and is able to develop some practices around how to do that, uh, that can be a really, really beautiful part of the work environment. And you're all in it together. And we're all in it together. So and we all depend on this for our living, which means it's a lot different from other kinds of political projects that I've been a part of because nobody can just sort of like storm out and leave. Nobody can say like, fuck you. I'm going to the other group on the other side of town. Yeah. <laughs> we, there's more of a built in incentive to work through stuff together. That's what I was going to say. There is incentive. You know, it's just a different. It's a different structure of incentive. It's a different type of incentive and one that probably is more sustainable. You know, I mean, I remember we covered worker co-ops when I was on Redacted Tonight and it just made so much sense. Right. Um, and there's no reason <laughs> that this can't happen in all sorts of industries. But to but to contribute in a way to be groundbreaking uh, in the mental health industry to do this is so cool, man. It's wonderful. Billy. Thank you, John. It is it is really exciting. <laughs> it's really fun. If folks are interested, if, if there are other mental health workers out there listening to this and kind of thinking about, you know, could I end up working at a place like that? Um, if you go to our website, which is alliancecollective.coop, there's a whole page there uh, called For Therapists, where we just talk about our story. We provide the rationale for why you would want to be a part of a worker co-op in the first place. Talk a little bit about kind of our, our particular hurdles in New York and kind of like the legal structure that we ended up with. But mostly it's just trying to make a case for why this absolutely should be a thing <laughs> that not just like a few lucky people in New York happen to be a part of, but like basically the entire, not the entire field of mental health, but folks who are kind of working at this level in these type of settings, there's no reason for them not to be organized this way. Yeah. And you were telling me that there is actually movement. There's a, there's a, there's different, uh, therapists, social workers, psychologists that are interested around the country in creating this. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Once once we got started and, and we're talking to people about what we we're up to. Um, yeah. Just folks started to kind of take notice and get interested. We also began to learn about other outfits that predated ours. Um, there's one in Minneapolis called Phoenix Mental Health. They've been around for like seven years. Amazing. They keep kind of a low profile. Um, but we were so glad to learn that they even exist. They actually have a slightly different model than we do. But that was that was exciting, too, to learn that there are, there's not just kind of like one recipe for how to do this. Yeah. But if if your main goal is to empower workers and uh, attend to the material conditions of everyone who's involved and promote horizontal relations of power and decision making rather than the hierarchical. There's a lot of different ways to do that. So yeah, now there are like literally hundreds of people who are interested in this and talk about it together in a Google group. Um, there's even a quarterly meeting that we've started to do with the different worker therapist worker co-ops that have managed to, to get started and are, are kind of uh, up and running and doing stuff. So yeah, there does seem to be some, some traction, which is really exciting. Incredibly exciting. I mean, it may, it's 
the more people that know about this, it just it just intuitively makes sense. Right. And it's for it's for treating mental health. Right. You know, it shouldn't be if the structure surrounding the treatment is this top down vulture capitalistic hierarchical thing where a number of the workers are being stressed out are are being overloaded with too much work uh it just doesn't make any sense it makes literally no sense like i remember i when i was uh when i i was using somebody from better help mm-hmm. during the uh uh during the pandemic and she was so burnt out. Yeah. It was crazy. Yeah. Like I would make sure to check in with her. Yes. You know what I mean? It would like half it would like partially be therapy for her. Yeah. Because she was just at her and I know that was a particularly specific, you know, crisis situation, but also I feel like the better help model is that hierarchical top-down structure. Totally. I mean, that's that's 99.9% of businesses. Yeah. operate that way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's crazy. Um, but speaking of getting burnt out with therapy, handling therapy, doing all that stuff. Um, This is the question I wanted to ask you. Yeah. And don't worry, psychos. I cleared it ahead of time to make sure it was okay. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to read what I wrote down. What's it like for you, Billy, as a psychologist to hold emotional space for Mm -hmm. so many people? Basically, how do you stay sane dealing with so many other people's trauma and other difficult issues? It's a good question. It's a question that doesn't have an, an easy or simple answer. Um, and I do, I think it's probably unlikely that any of my clients would be listening to this, but if hey, they you are, never know. you kidding. never know, <laughs> you never know. But go ahead. If they are, if they are, I, I think I would want to start with the point of just how devoted I am to my clients, how much I really care about the work that I do. Um, and how much I, I do have it within me to keep doing this work for a long time. <laughs> I feel like, and, and thanks in large part to the co-op and the nature of my working conditions, I am in a position to be able to do this sustainably in a way that I think a lot of other mental health providers are not. Yeah. So I just kind of want to make that point of like, that's so I, cool. I want to be a little, a little raw and a little real about how I actually am feeling, but I don't, I don't don't want anyone that I'm, I'm currently working with to kind of feel like they need to take care of me. You know, you know, that, that kind of weird dynamic in therapy where you felt it with your therapist where you were like, are they okay? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. I think that that is a fair and honest and appreciated disclaimer. So then I think I would just say anyone doing care work these days is having a tough go of it. This is just a really, really tough season uh, to be providing help of any kind. And the factors that contribute to that, from my perspective, are climate crisis, the rise of global fascism, uh, economic crisis, the pandemic, which is still ongoing even though joe biden and the cdc tell us it's over like (laughs) shit is still bad out here um and just just all of the damage that that did how how isolating and alienating that was i mean man people's anxiety and depression just went through the roof in the early stages of the pandemic and and seemed not to have come back down that much uh in the years that followed 
substance abuse has, has just gone through the roof over the last few years as well. So I think it's a really, really tough time for, for anybody doing care work. There's, there's too much need. People are suffering too greatly and our existing systems to try to provide help with any of this are just totally maxed out, just like completely, completely used up. Um, if you or anyone you know have tried to find a therapist recently, you know the drill. You know that basically nobody's taking new patients. Yeah. Um, and it's incredibly dispiriting for anyone who is reaching out for that kind of help right now and just, just coming up empty. But from the therapist's perspective, it's, it is difficult to have uh, just this kind of fire hose of need <laughs> that you're standing in front of every day. Wow. And yeah. it's hard not to feel knocked over by it. One of the saddest parts of my daily routine at work is, is returning voicemails and letting people know that neither I nor anyone else at Alliance right now is, is taking new clients and then trying to offer some sort of help for like, so where would you go to find somebody? Um, yeah. So it's, it's a lot, it's a lot to manage. Um, and you know, in addition to letting people know that we are yet another place that they've turned to for help and, and are not getting the help and, and kind of like how that weighs on me, the work itself is extra hard. My, my work with my clients is, is just especially tough these days. Um, just because of kind of all of the misery and, and suffering and and just the the levels of crisis that people are in and and this takes me back to what i was saying earlier about psychology and the limitations of the discipline i feel so helpless being trained in a discipline that's that's very uh kind of astute and thoughtful about what's going on in the mind when somebody's being evicted from their apartment or just lost their job or their mother died from complications of covid when the problems that they're dealing with are not in the head at all, of course their their uh, experience of it and reaction to it is, and that's what we end up talking about is just kind of how they're managing. But that level of helplessness that I feel when the things that are going on in my client's life are nothing that they or I have any kind of power to solve, at least not right now, you know? Yeah. That's a lot. That does take a toll. And I've, I've really had to up my game in terms of, of my own self-care practices, what I need just to kind of keep my head above water, make sure that, that my emotional needs are being met, make, make sure that I'm taking care of my body the way that I should be. Um, so it's a really tough time and I don't really see it getting much better <laughs> anytime soon. Um, yeah. When I just kind of look around at what's happening in the world, I don't necessarily see some kind of, uh, some, some sort of, you know, parting of the clouds yeah. necessarily where, where things get a lot better than they are today. So I'm trying to think about that and just kind of what that looks like, especially for an entire career in this field, you know, like what, what does it look like for me to really commit to doing this? Not just now, but for the next like 40 years or so. Yeah. 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 Wow. Thank you for that. That was very honest. That was, there was uh, some real vulnerability there. I appreciate it because listeners don't get to hear that perspective. So it's nice to hear. I mean, you're human just like everybody else. You know, you're dealing with your issues. Uh, you're do you're, I'm glad that you have a self care practice in place because that's so important. And I think it's really cool that you hold space for so many people. 
Thank you, John. I think it's respectable. I appreciate that. I do. It, I feel like I'm able to to hear that and re- receive that in a way that feels good, um, as opposed to there. I think sometimes in the helping professions, I think um, some people do develop a little bit of a martyr complex, where like their entire identity is providing care to others, and they kind of lose themselves. Yeah. Um, and that that is a line that I try to hold. I try to remember that I am a person, a person with, with real needs and, and a whole life to look after, and that that is important and, and isn't paradoxical to or antithetical to the work that I do as a psychologist or as a, a mental health provider. Um, that it's actually possible for me to look after myself and others, right? That those don't need to be mutually exclusive. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Like for me as like a little joke monkey, I, uh, when I make people laugh, I immediately get to feel good about it yeah. <laughs> at the same yeah. time. You yeah. know what I mean? Right. It's like a little life hack of right. some sort as a jokester. Um, but uh, the value that I create is quite more questionable than the value you create, but that's okay. I don't know if we have to uh, parse that. I don't, I don't know if we have to put them in like different categories of, of value. Yeah, yeah. This is all people love to laugh. This is all part of the the ecology of of what it means to be a human and of the different aspects of our experience. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I was just thinking in a more vertical hierarchical right. uh, ethos right there. What if we, what if we didn't? Yeah, what know? if we don't? Why right. do we have to right. put so much more or less value on right. different things? Come on. Come on. Get over it. Let it go. I'm sorry. I'm a product of my socialization <laughs> too, Billy. You know what I mean? Right. Like I like the form of government I think about in my head that I've learned about that I don't know a ton about. It's called anarcho-syndicalism. Right. That sounds fascinating to me. Right. It's like... Another way of, okay, so the term libertarian has different meanings in Europe compared to in America. Yeah. So like a left, there's such thing as like a left-wing libertarian. That's right. Which is That's what that word originally meant. Yeah. Yeah. So an anarchist syndicalist is like, it's basically a kind of worker-run sort of structure Mm -hmm. that had, that kind of like an anarchist collective that has an association with other groups out there. So it's like a syndicate. Yeah, that's it. And uh, it seems like a fascinating, interesting structure that we could have. It totally could be. You know? Right. And so it has to start on a small scale. Right. So you have it on a very small scale. You know, this is actually this is part of a strategy that's that has a few different names. Um, some people know it as a dual power strategy. Um, it's also called prefigurative politics or prefiguration. Um, there's another movement called especifismo, which is kind of related in its concept, which is basically kind of the idea that this is not going to happen in one fell swoop. <laughs> sure. There needs to be tiny little experimental pockets of of liberation and and basically kind of what I was talking about earlier, people, real people, learning these skills of how to relate to one another uh, horizontally, how to share power, decision-making, how to care for one another in those kind of small contexts. And then in the future, those can start to link up. They can start to join up. Um, the, the scale starts to kind of emerge out of those smaller little uh, experimental pockets. 
So we really do think of what we're doing as something kind of very intentional and deliberate in that regard, a, a prefigurative, um, I, I keep using the word experiment and I don't actually like that word because it sounds like it sounds, it makes the stakes sound lower than they are. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But basically a, a way of, of really kind of living out these values um, kind of on the ground at a small scale and being able to, to, to see just how well they really do work. Right. What a dramatic difference it can make in one's life, in one's material conditions to, to work together in this way. And then kind of hoping, expecting, looking, waiting for, for this kind of thing to start bubbling up all over so that they can begin to join together. Yeah. In an anarcho-syndicalist right. uh, modality. People get freaked out by the word anarchy just because there's been such an effective smear com- campaign against it. Like people th- think sure. nihilism, they think wanton violence. Yeah, but yeah. Can I read you a quote by uh, a dead Italian anarchist? Name Erico Malatesta. <laughs> yes, please check do. this out. By anarchist spirit, I mean that deeply human sentiment which aims at the good of all, freedom and justice for all, solidarity and love among the people, which is not an exclusive characteristic only of self-declared anarchists, but inspires all people who have a generous heart and an open mind. It's beautiful. Who wouldn't want that? That doesn't just sound like uh, groups of marauders, like <laughs> ravaging right? people on right? the street. It's kind of like the opposite. You know what that? I mean? Right. Yeah. And also it's like, um, it means that the state does not have a monopoly on violence. That's it. You know, it's, that's it. I mean, things are going, sadly, things are going so far in the other direction. Um, but the idea of groups like this popping up and then the potential for them to be replicated or versions of them to be made like iterations of it to happen and then to have an association together it can be profound could you imagine if the uh the worker co-op model for mental health was just taught in one class yeah in uh in grad school for psychologists it would be miraculous you know and who knows who knows what can happen i mean i am Despite it all, I'm an eternal optimist. I really am. Um, and that's just the way it is. <laughs> I, love it. I love that about you, John. Yeah, man. Um, can you, is there anything else that we haven't covered that, you, uh, that you'd that you like to speak about before we let everybody know where they can find out about your organization again? I'm racking my brain and I can't think of anything. I mean, we've, we've covered a we're lot good. We did good. We're good on time. <laughs> I just wanted to check in yeah. about that. Um, so, uh, what I want to say is this is, uh, it's really great that I get this opportunity to get to interview you, to get to hear this perspective. It means a lot. Um, and I really, uh, it's, I'm very appreciative. Can you let folks know again, I know you already told them, but can you let folks know, uh, how they can find out about your organization and just let them know about anything else that you'd like to tell them to share with them? Sure. Uh, our website is alliancecollective.coop. Um, we probably won't have any openings for clients anytime in the near future. Yeah. So unfortunately it's not a good place to go if, if you're looking uh, for someone to meet with, but But mental health care professionals do listen to this podcast. Okay, good. On our, uh, on our website, there's a a whole page uh, for clients and there are quite a few directories on there um, uh, for places to, to go and look for, for therapists who do have openings. Um, there's also a section of that page where it just talks about radical perspectives on mental health. 
which is just providing a little bit more of the kind of analysis that, w- that we've been uh, using here today to kind of think about the mental health industrial complex and kind of, uh, right, this idea of maybe being able to locate the problem more kind of in the systems that are bearing down on us rather than, than as a like exclusively intrapsychic problem. Um, so that's our website. There is another website, the URL is escaping me right now, uh, that was set up by a friend of ours that just provides information kind of more broadly for for therapists and mental health workers who are interested in the worker co-op model. I think if you Google therapist worker cooperative, I think it's one of the first sites that'll pop up. Um, And I believe there's also a Facebook group for folks who are interested. If there, if there are therapists or mental health professionals who, who are kind of actively interested in, in this and like want to talk to other people who are maybe thinking of starting a worker co-op or joining one, um, you can actually send an email to info at alliancecollective.coop and we can add you to a Google group where there's right now, I think around 200 mental health workers and students from all over the world at this point who are having that conversation. And it's actually a good place to reach out to people in your region. So like if you lived in Colorado, for example, and just wanted to know, is there anyone else here who's kind of thinking about this? That's a good place to start to make those connections. Yeah. That's great. That's so great. Um, so yeah, definitely take advantage of those uh, those resources, psychos. And if you're a mental health professional, uh, get involved. Send them an email, drop them an email, and get on that Google group. You know, and why not? Why not? Why don't you start a worker cooperative mental health uh, organization? It Thank sounds you. pretty good to me. Um, so I'll just say I'll just remind you guys again. I got those West Virginia shows coming up, so uh, check my Instagram for that. I got my stand-up special. I'd love if you watch that. If you're in the area, come to Live from Outer Space. It's a fun time. Uh, support me on Patreon, Patreon.com/slash/JFOD, and send me an emails to say hello at TakeYourPillsPod at gmail.com. This has been another episode of Take Your Pills Psychopath, the comedy podcast that exploits mental illness for personal profit. What? Trademark. I've been John F. O'Donnell. Billy, thank you so much. Thank you, John. I really enjoyed it. Good. I'm glad you had fun. Everybody have a great day, evening, afternoon, wherever you're at. I love you guys. Bye.